BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 163. Well, I'll tell you, one of the added perks of writing a book on the science of meetings as I have found that the meetings I attend, they're much better than they used to be. That is Dr. Stephen G. Rogelberg, who is a psychologist and an organizational scientist who studies management, organizations, institutions, how people work together in groups. And he has written a book about his lifetime pursuit, his study over the last 20 years, the centerpiece of what he works on day to day. This is a scientist who studies meetings, meetings, and he's written a book called The Surprising Science of Meetings. I feel like people are kind of, they feel a little extra pressure. (laughs) (laughs) So so I I definitely find that um, the meetings that these are not the meetings I'm leading. So the meetings that I'm just attending, they have gotten better. That's a great, I mean, this may be a, a tip that you should have included in the book that if you want to have better meetings, invite me. <laughs> now you probably hate meetings. Most people do. Stephen told me that over the last two decades of his research, people often tell him that they feel like that's all they ever do at work, is sit through meetings. And that's actually true of a lot of people. He's found that the higher up you go in an organization, the more meetings you will likely attend every day. For instance, many of the CEOs he has interviewed tell him that about five to six hours of their work days, five to six hours, are spent in meetings. And you've likely spent many of your waking hours desperately waiting for a meeting to conclude, or you've attended a meeting about having meetings or meeting about having fewer meetings or better meetings. And much of this awfulness all feels inevitable or unnecessary. But his research has shown that neither of these conclusions are true. Meetings are only bad if we make them bad. And they are not something that we can just do away with. They're crucial to the cohesion of any institution. So, he wrote a book about how to use his research and the research of others to improve the meetings in any organization. So, 
how do you study meetings? Like before we get into the the details of your book, what is what are some of the methods that and and, and if you could, as far as your career goes, like how long have you been doing this, and what are some of the ways you do it? I'd like to just hear a little bit about that. Well, I've been studying meetings and teams for over twenty years, and so obviously quite a while. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of different ways of studying it. Um, I've administered surveys to people. Um, you know, where they they talk about their days before it happens and they talk about the meetings before they happen. I survey people at the end of their days where they reflect back on the meetings that have occurred. I've surveyed people and interviewed people right after a meeting to kind of capture those experiences. Um, I've even had people keep diaries where they maintain records for over five days that say about all their meetings and also how they feel about their day and their job attitudes. And then we've even conducted experiments um, where we bring people into a, into a kind of a, a lab setting um, where they have a, a meeting. And we videotape it, and we can watch it, and we can manipulate certain things. So, for example, we've done a study where we manipulated lateness to meetings. Mm. So we could really kind of quantify what are, they, what are the effects of on a meeting when it starts late. Um, so there's lots of, really, lots of different modalities um, that can be applied to kind of understand this. I love this. I love this so much. Because we often think of science as lab codes and petri dishes, and telescopes, and lab rats, but scientists study every aspect of the natural world, and when you learn there are scientists who study meetings, those times that we get together in boardrooms, or over video chat, or on conference calls, or even just coffee, it reminds you that everything we do is part of the natural world. It's all part of the interaction of atoms, and molecules, and physical forces that scale up to things like PowerPoint presentations and weekly department head check-ins and so on. And there is a wing of science called organizational science that studies these sorts of things. And they've been studying them for a long time. I mean, if you step back for a moment, the really the, 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 the question is how could we not study this, right? If, if people are spending so much time in meetings... And they're so incredibly frustrating. Um, it is just a perfect opportunity, right? Because you ideally, as a scientist, you want to study things that matter. And meetings are having a tremendous effect on humans. And there's so many of them. So I was really drawn to that. And the numbers are shocking, at least to me. So I, some of the best estimates that I've seen um, suggest that there are around 55 million meetings a day. I love numbers like that. 55 million every day. Every day. That's every single day. That's not like in a week. That's mm-hmm. uh, There was 55 million yesterday. There'll be 55 million today. I love the idea of that. For some reason, it makes me feel like I'm floating above the planet and I see it, you know, like I'm the idea that of all these interlocking social systems and phenomena that are taking place from, you know, and the, all, all these natural occurrences, the oceans doing their thing and, and the, uh, and um, but also traffic flowing and and then you know ants building nests all the things that are happening in that mix are human beings getting together and doing this thing that we've created and there are 55 million occurrences of that happening every single day and it feels like there's just 
at any given moment, if you just slice the human experience, like make a cross section of it, what you would find is that we're all in a meeting. I just love the idea of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. I agree. The, I actually, I write in some of my articles, the idea that meetings are windows of, um, you know, into the very essence of an organization that if you could just do that slice, as you note, um, you will learn so much about the health and effectiveness of an organization. Um, yeah, meetings are the building blocks. And that's why, that's why um, in my book and my various talks, I don't, I don't suggest that meetings should be eliminated. Um, you know, meetings are essential. Uh, meetings are critical for communication, cooperation, coordination, consensus decision-making, right? Organizational democracy in many ways takes place in meetings. So the elimination of meetings is a false goal. What we really want to do is eliminate wasted time in meetings mm -hmm. and to just think differently about meetings. Try to elevate that time. Um, think about how can we make sure that we've honored people's time in meetings. And there are definitely ways of, of doing that. How to improve meetings where you work or anywhere else using the science of meetings, using the evidence gathered by psychology and sociology and organizational science and all these other wings of social science and beyond. That's what we're going to talk about in this episode, right after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before, and this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy 
for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McRaney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. In this episode, we're speaking with Stephen G. Rogelberg. He is a professor of psychology and organizational science, and he's written a book called The Surprising Science of Meetings, 
And we're talking about the surprising science of meetings. I really, I love that idea that, so that your book is not about, Hey, meeting, cause this is where that was my approach. When I first picked up the book, I was like, finally, somebody's going to say, we shouldn't have any more meetings. That, that's a, a side conversation I've had several times too, which is the idea that like meetings are a waste of time. In fact, you actually um, quote people in the book who have, who are like famous people or people who have been at the head of organizations who's, who had that opinion as well, that we should just get rid of meetings altogether, that they are in a world with email and Skype and uh, um, Slack, that there's no need to actually see people face to face. And if you could just address that idea for a second. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's um, a world without meetings is much more problematic. Um, I mean, really, if you think about the evolution of meetings, right, it came out of um, you know this initial belief that all decisions and um, you know should just be exercised by the boss and the boss's boss, and people were just pawns to be told what to do. But our models of organizational effectiveness have changed. Like we've really come to believe that organizational greatness is beyond just a great person making all the choices that by leveraging the talent of those around you, by promoting these synergies, unexpected and amazing things can happen. Uh, through inclusion, um, you get wonderful things. By involvement in meetings, you get people committed to what was acting, what was discussed in the meetings so that they persist more, more readily. And when they come across a roadblock, they become more creative in trying to figure out how to get through it. So, um, you know, so basically, the meetings, I think, are, it's a recognition of human potential. And, you know, it's a recognition of, I think, what organizations can be when they, when they leverage their talent most effectively. Uh, so, yeah, so I absolutely believe that we, we need meetings. Um, and that if we didn't, it would be really, really, really bad for the human experience of, of work. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, but, but that, but again, I mean, there's, the, I understand why the critics say what they say. I, I get it. Um, but I feel like the, a bad meeting is a symptom of a person who doesn't know how to lead the meeting. It's not just a symptom of the meeting in and of itself. I can see where lots of people who don't like meetings think that all meetings are, are like the meetings that they're in. Uh, and then instead of thinking we can improve this, they think we should just get rid of this because this is a terrible idea. Uh, well, how did we ever get started doing this? This is some tradition that needs to go away. And then the people leading meetings who think when the meeting goes bad, they don't think that meeting went bad because I'm not good at this. <laughs> they think this, this meeting went bad because meetings are bad. And then another aspect is all of us being so unhappy with meetings suggests that we all are we all share this idea that they're um, that, that this is just a, 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 an evil that we have to deal with in life instead of it being something that can be fixed. So we, we said how many meetings everybody has 55 million in a day about how many meetings does the typical person have a day? It varies based on um, the type of job you, you have. Mm -hmm. um, and so what's, um, you know, we've had data that suggests um, 
you know, that people have around seven um, meetings a week, kind of on average. But I think the data that are more compelling is that when you look at people who are leaders, um, and we can find that leaders spend between 50 to 75% of their time in meetings. Wow. Uh, so clearly everyone is having some level of meeting activity. But as you move up an organizational hierarchy, that activity just continues to expand. And as you say in the book, the um, the higher up you go in the hierarchy, the more meetings you have until eventually it's just, you know, my job is to have meetings all day because I'm the person exactly. telling everybody what to do um, <laughs> or keeping up my tabs on the company. Uh, if, if you're the president, it's just meeting, 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 meeting. And if you... If, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And if all your meetings suck, then you will think, wow, right? My, my life, half of my life is doing this thing that's terrible. How much money do we spend as a nation on meetings? Like, and how is that calculated? So th there have been some statistics um, that have been generated. Uh, so you can definitely cost out meetings, right? We know the cost of, of each and every meeting we attend in terms of direct dollars, right? By looking at the time and the ind individual salaries, uh, we can cost out a meeting. Uh, so some organizations have done estimates and suggest that 15% of your entire personnel budget is basically going to meetings. Uh -huh. And this is a tremendous number. Um, this is a tremendous number because this is this is actually that line item doesn't exist on any budget sheet, right? <laughs> so, can you imagine any organizational expenditure this large that actually isn't noticed? Um, and so that's kind of a, a local index. And then there's some other data suggests that as a country, it equates to around 1.4 trillion dollars a year in in activity. Um, but but in in so many regards, these costs are underestimates. Um, mm. You know, if you're costing out a meeting, yeah, you can identify the direct costs, but there's so many indirect costs, right? There's opportunity costs, right? There's, you could have been doing something else and that something else could have been, you know, much better. Um, then, you know, there's the cost of the frustration. There's a the cost of being, you know, feeling disengaged. Um, there's the cost of the room and the travel time. So you have, and there's the cost of not being available to your customers. And then there's even something that we found in our research um, called meeting recovery syndrome, MRS, meeting <laughs> recovery syndrome. So this is the idea that when we have a bad meeting, we just don't leave it at the door. It appears to stick with us and it, seem, it goes with us and we ruminate on it and we often co-ruminate. So we need to make sense of the bad meeting. Uh, we have to talk to others about our bad meeting. So that's more wasted time. And if you really reflect, we, we definitely all do this, right? When we have a bad meeting, we, we definitely have to talk to others <laughs> about it. And it definitely sticks with us. So that, there's another set of costs. This is an, an enormous amount of money and an enormous amount of time. An enormous amount of our lives are spent doing this. It's like the next thing after sleep, it seems like. Um, we generally don't like what, how they work and yet they are essential to having the modern world that we enjoy. So it seems that we should do something about it using science as a way to do that. And scientists like yourself who've been studying it for 20 years is a better way to go about solving problems, in my opinion, than just uh, throwing opinions out there. So I'm following the order of your book. One of the things we can first, one of the problems we can tackle first is the length of meetings. The science has a lot to say about that. I'll just let you go. Just um, 
you have some suggestions in the book about how to handle how long a meeting should be. What are they? Okay. Uh, so I'll just keep my comments uh, focused on length. Uh, so basically, um, think about the typical meeting length and how long do you think it generally is? I, most of my meetings are scheduled for an hour, although they go over right. a little bit. Okay. So yeah, most meetings are scheduled for an hour. And there's no magical reason for that, right? That tends to just be an artifact of our calendaring system. Mm. And that's just not a good reason to establish a meeting time of an hour, especially given something called Parkinson's Law. And Parkinson's Law is this idea that work expands to fill whatever time is allotted to it. So if you schedule a meeting for an hour, magically it will basically always take an hour. So we can use this to our advantage, right? We can schedule meetings for less than an hour. And if you schedule a meeting for, let's say, 48 minutes, likely it's going to take 48 minutes. So the best practice is for a leader to think carefully about what truly needs to be accomplished in that meeting and how long should it take, Mm. right? So make a choice, make a decision. And in fact, once you make a decision, I encourage that meeting leader to dial it back a little bit, add a little pressure, The psychological research shows that when you add a little pressure to groups, they tend to be more focused and actually perform more optimally. So I like the idea idea of leaders, you know, being purposeful, decide on a meeting time, um, and you know, really making it a thoughtful decision. Um, I don't have any problem with a meeting starting, you know, fourteen minutes after an hour. I have no problem with a meeting taking thirty five minutes. Um, that's all fine. People will appreciate it. They'll be curious, which is fine because they're just like, oh, what's going on here? They'll love the idea of having time returned to them. And also when your meeting doesn't fill this whole calendar block, one of the things that you're doing is you're allowing them to get to their next activity on time. That's the same that we don't, <laughs> that it's not factored in, that we just, the, the, the lag between the, the two meetings, if the fact that we have back-to-back meetings and the, and the idea that there's no adjustment period even included into the planning, it almost feels like people are like, well, what are we supposed to do? Meetings last an hour. I mean, you know, like, 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 like a kid, this can't be changed. If it, I well, know. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. And it's really funny because our entire socialization in schools, like we're yeah, led to believe yeah. that intervals are a good idea. Like we're led to believe that you actually do need time to get to your next activity. And so we, we know this, this is not some crazy science. Um, and, but yeah, typically organizations um, aren't doing that. And so, you know, I've definitely found that um, that's been, that's low hanging fruit um, for organizations to do. So a lot of organizations who have leveraged the book, you know, they stopped defaulting to an hour or 30 minutes that they basically changed their defaults to 25 and 50 minutes. And, and that's a, certainly a good start. Um, I want even more intentionality in that, but still, I love that as a good start. Yeah, yeah. Intentionality is the big is the big theme of the book. Like, like, hey, you know, you can change this. Hey, you know, you could think about this a little bit. Maybe you know, you could you could make it better. You don't have to just like lay back and take the fact that meetings happen. That there's a way to like. You're, we can change all this. We could paint this place, you know, purple if you want to. We can do whatever we want. You know, we can have meetings. We can do a meeting where everybody has to wear a funny hat if we want to. We can That's do whatever right. we can do what we want. That's people. right. That's right. Like, you know, the um, I mean, intentionality is just so critical. Um, so even when you think about um, so when you think about the research, there's no magic formula um, to make a meeting great. 
And there's no magic formula to anything, right? This is when you think about self-help books and weight loss books. You know, when we think there's a magic formula, it's never sustainable. Um, this magic formulas are just not a thing. And this just uh, applies to meetings too. So, you know, but when you get people thinking and making choices, um, it's just going to be a better collective experience. And we can all find pieces of our lives where we are intentional and we, we know that there's benefits, right? We're intentional. You're intentional. You in designing this, this podcast, right? We're intentional if we're hosting, you know, a party. Um, we're intentional every time we meet with a customer. Like we're intentional in so many phases of our life. And intentionality doesn't even take us that long. It could take us just 30 seconds to a minute, but we just, we're thinking through it because we don't want that person to leave our party or our meeting with our customer saying, oh my gosh, I really wish I wasn't there, right? That's an unacceptable thought. But when it comes to like meetings with our peers or our direct reports, we just don't have that same level of intentionality. We don't inherently keep embracing that steward of others' time mindset. You also mentioned the, the Parkinson's law and the Yerkes-Dodson law. If you could talk about those two things just a little bit. So yeah, Parkinson's laws is really that idea that work expands to fill whatever time is allotted to it. Yeah, they've even had research where they they kind of videotape um, groups' um, activity as they proceed through um, kind of a, a, this timed experience. And basically, groups don't even really start working hard until they hit that halfway point. Mm. So there's definitely those anchors of how much time is scheduled has a big effect on us um, and how we approach and the urgency we bring to that task. And the Yerkes Dotson is just is really an inverted U. And what they find is that performance and pressure kind of have a positive linear relationship. So people seem to do better with pressure, but then up to a limit when the pressure gets or the stress or it gets too high, then it starts to negatively impact performance. So you want to find that midpoint. So that's why moderate, reasonable levels of pressure uh, tend to result in the most optimal performance. Yeah. So the um, there's also another thing, uh, yeah, um, forgive me if we already mentioned it, but the, the don't, even after you reduce the time uh, of meetings, if you can avoid having back-to-back -back meetings, you suggest that maybe we should do that. Is that another thing? So that's, um, that's a different thing. Um, you know, this is really the, this is leveraging research on interruptions that we know that when humans are experience a host of interruptions, that it tends to have a negative effect on them. It has a negative effect on their well-being. It has a negative effect on their productivity, right? Because that task switching is, can, be, can be a concern. And so we've started to do research around this topic of trying to look at the optimal scheduling of meetings. And really what our hypothesis and our theory is, is that we need to design people's days so that they do have periods of time where they are unscheduled, where they have uninterrupted time, where they can get into flow, right? Where they can accomplish their creative tasks um, and just be fully present with lots of interruptions. So if, so if that's the case, um, then, you know, where people kind of have their meetings, um, you know, I'm okay with back-to-back -back if all the back-to-back -back meetings, in a sense, are all done at in a, in a kind of a finite amount of time, right? So it's not back to back throughout the entire day. So if you were kind of giving me my, my perfect meeting cadence for someone scheduling meetings, I love the idea they get to work, they have time to do their thing, 
kind of get wound up, you know, respond to emails, address some pressing tasks. And then I like the idea of a, a meeting before lunch because we know lunch is going to be an interruption. So I like the idea of a meeting before lunch and I like the, an idea of a meeting after lunch. Uh, right. So now you kind of have this middle block of time where you you've had this meeting activity, but it's not interrupting you anymore. And then after that that post lunch meeting, then you get back into flow and hopefully you know finish your day feeling like you've done both individual, you've had individual success and you've had collective success. Hmm. So what about huddles? How does this play into these other ideas that we've just presented? Yeah, so huddles are this idea of a quick, speedy meeting, um, 10 to 15 minutes, um, and huddles are designed to build alignment, right? They're analogous to, let's say, American football, where everyone gets together, has a huddle, calls the play, they scan the field, they make a decision, and it's all about the here and now. And I love it. I think that's a great use of a huddle is to get a team aligned. And and But the, the thing with a huddle is that sometimes – um, people have them go too long. Like huddles should never run long. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need to stay tight. Um, that's why I even love the idea of it just keeping it to 10 minutes. And I just want huddles to be that quick conversation um, at a predictable time. Everyone's available. Um, I, I think a general in the morning, it's a good time. But if it's just 10 minutes, then I don't feel it kind of takes you out of your flow. It just, you get the benefits, that alignment um, between the team, you know, what is the most pressing issue uh, of that day. And then for those topics that are more meaty, then I, what I suggest is that the, the team, they park them, right? They put them into a, a full meeting that's designed to talk about those more strategic issues. So overall, I love this idea of this cadence of these quick, quick meetings to really avoid the need for, for meetings, but these quick meetings to just to get people on the right page and then, you know, more substantive things where you can kind of, um, you know, talk about those issues that sometimes just keep getting tabled. Yeah. So the, so th- this uh, sort of covers length. And I think that's a big part of the whole thing. Cause I know when we start to check, everybody checks out at a certain point, starts playing with their phone, especially if they're not engaged. But another reason for that is, is not just the length is because the meeting wasn't planned well we've when we've talked about that a little bit and this is a big part of the book in fact the the title of this chapter is agendas are a hollow crutch so what do you mean by that and what and if uh, i'll let you just sort of speak broadly about agendas and then we can dig into to anything specific yeah um so one of the things that we find in our research is that having an agenda is really not all that predictive at all of meeting success um and if you really stop and think, that's that's really not much of a surprise, right? People uh, tend to recycle a lot of agendas, um, and what matters more is not having the agenda, but what's on the agenda. Is it really compelling? Is it compelling to the people you invited to the meeting? Um, did you ask for input into what that agenda is? And then most importantly, again, if you really think about it, it shouldn't be a surprise, is how you facilitate those agenda items. You know, did you involve others? And was it a meaningful discussion? So those are the topics that really matter. Um, and that's why I titled the chapter, Agendas Are a Hollow Crutch. Because if you open most meetings books, they, they always start, have an agenda, have an agenda. And I'm, I'm nothing, I'm not a, I don't hate agendas. I think agendas could be awesome. But just having an agenda is not enough. And right. the problem is so many meeting leaders think that, oh, look, I'm a good meeting leader. I had an agenda. And like, that is just false. 
I, I get this. I get this mentality because I feel this way all the time. Like I want to, I'm like, I have a plan, therefore everything's worked out. Or I've, I've written out what I'm going to do today, which means that I am very organized. Or I organized all day long, which means I am very, like, just because you did the thing doesn't mean you did the thing well. And um, arranging folders on your desktop doesn't really equal productivity. <laughs> um, but I get it. It feels, you do feel better. So uh, I used to really enjoy when I had to lead a meeting, writing out that agenda was the coolest part to me. I was like, mm-hmm, I'm making this agenda and it's, uh, it's going to be, it's going to look cool and I'm going to send it to everybody and we're going to follow it and it's going to be orderly. But, um, and uh, that, that, I mean, it didn't matter. But if, if you don't do it right, then it's going to uh, still lead to weird things. And you mentioned all these different ways that agendas can be done improperly or poorly or can lead to poor outcomes and how to fix that. You say if a topic doesn't require, I think this was huge to me. If a topic does not require interaction, it should be handled in another medium. And I feel like that is a lot of what people complain about when they say, why didn't we do this as an email? This meeting could have been an email, that kind of thing. If you could talk about that. So if you're going to have people there, ideally you want some interaction. (laughs) I mean, that's just, (laughs) it just seems like that's, um, kind of intuitive. Um, so now, if your agenda is all just information, there are clearly other ways of doing it, uh, you know, especially in this day and age, right? You can just film yourself um, on your phone. You can talk into your phone. You can just send yourself talking about this issue to everyone, and then people can listen to it at their leisure, right? They can listen to it on their commute. They can listen to it in a way that doesn't interrupt them from their current flow. And other thing is they can listen to it a time and a half. Right, because we tend to be able to listen faster than pe- most people speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's just different ways of thinking about it. But even if the meeting is just going to be information based, we can approach those more creatively. Uh, so, for example, if you're going to have people just let's say report out on some information, all right, give them time limits. Say you have one minute to report out, and here and give mm. people the same structure so that everyone kind of knows what to do, and then put a timer up. Right? Make it into this game where people are like prepared and they're giving you that one-minute bullet and it's awesome. And so it's extremely efficient. And you have a little bit of that entertaining component to it. And then I'm also a really big fan of leveraging silence for update meetings. This is a practice that you can find often at um, Twitter where bring folks together for an update meeting and then on the screen you have a Google Doc. And basically everyone is doing their update as a paragraph live in the Google Doc. And so you see this update document being created. In a sense, everyone is speaking at once. The updates are done, and then everyone's going through the doc. They're reading it. They're adding comments. They're making notes. And you've had this lively, interactive, wonderful discussion, but it's all silent. You talk about the silence a lot, too. The silence happens a lot in the in remote meetings. Uh, I used to do a lot of phone call meetings. You know, call in and, pre- and type in this number and... And you'll be included in the conference call. And then we all wait and everybody gets in there and we share our things. In fact, I have one of those today at 1 p.m. So um, sometimes those are great and sometimes those are not. You mentioned something, though. When I worked in a job at a, at a desk uh, in a building with a bunch of other people, when I had my conference call meetings, we all had to press mute. That was the first thing. And, if, and you always knew who didn't have the mute pressed because you could hear whatever they were doing. And then you would hear them uh, you know, <laughs> you'd hear them doing not the meeting, of course, eventually. Um, 
In fact, I always love when people would be like, uh, hey, how you doing? Oh, nobody. Well, you know, oh, I got this stupid meeting. And like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can hear them talking <laughs> over me. So, so everybody mutes. One person talks. And I started almost immediately to play on the internet uh, or to do some other work that I actually needed to be doing. And, uh, and I have more than once gotten up and gotten something to drink and, came, and come back to sit down. And I started thinking... I bet everybody's doing this. And I bet there's a chance that this person's talking to no one and that, that that everyone on this meeting is actually doing something else. And this person has become like a plant in the room. It's like a construction work taking outside, taking place outside the window is just noise. Now, what do we know about all this? Uh, remote meetings. Those are, those are tricky ones. Um, I'll share a quick little piece of data. Um, if, if I did, a survey and I asked people what is the most dysfunctional way of meeting in terms of just not being highly effective, mm-hmm. the remote meeting will emerge as the, as the number one mm-hmm. um, thing. But if I ask people, which meeting do you most prefer to attend? They will say the remote meeting. All right. <laughs> and, and, you know, and it's clear that it's so they can multitask and they can do other things. And that is, Obviously, um, not a good uh, statement about remote meetings. So remote meetings certainly require uh, more care and more attention. They are definitely more, uh, much more tricky to execute. What about meeting like, like we're doing now? We're having this conversation over audio. Uh, and uh, I don't do these with video because I find video meetings, um, there's something mysteriously bad about them in, in, in when it comes to interviews. But I'm not so sure when it comes to if I was trying to organize things within my uh, institution. What's the what do we know about the difference between audio only like phone call meetings versus these new technologies like Google Hangouts and Skype and so on? Right. Well, it comes down to in many regards this concept of, of social loafing, and social loafing has been proven in the science, um, and basically it's the idea that we reduce our efforts um, when in a crowd. Mm-hmm. And the more people that are there, the more we reduce our efforts. And it's just something that appears to happen. But one of the ways of countering social loafing is kind of identifiability. To the extent that your efforts are known or can be kind of you know, made known, you tend to not reduce as much. So when we're having a meeting, um, when it's audio only, then we are just ripe with social loafing. And it's different than your context of an interview because it's just two of us. Like we can't socially loaf during this conversation. We have to right. be present. But if there was 10 of us, like if your thing was I'm going to interview nine meeting experts, um, yes, then there would definitively be social loafing going on. And so when you're just audio only, uh, you don't have this identifiability, and one of the best ways to create the identifiability is to switch to video. And videos then now create this new level of accountability. Um, the other thing that leaders can do is just keep calling people by name. Um, so even though you have video, you still get in the habit of you know, using people's names all the time. And then I also like the idea of a meeting leader kind of keeping track of who's talking and who's not. And that way, if they can say, they can say, hey, Jane, I haven't heard from you for a while. Um, what do you think about all this? You know, Gordon, any comments? So they are just fully dialed into the facilitation. 
That's really good. And what about mute buttons? What do you feel about that? Uh, so this has gotten me in trouble. Um, <laughs> I was wondering why you said <laughs> Yes, this has gotten me in trouble. But um, so, yes, yeah, so I, I have a whole chapter in the book about remote meetings. And um, one of the things I talk about is this idea of banning the mute button. And while I don't mean you should always ban the mute button, I see, I do see the value at times. But think about what the mute button does. If you did ban it, what would people have to do? They would have to pick a quiet place to have their meeting. They would have to not walk their dog. They would have to not load the dishes. They would have to not eat their sandwich, right? They would have to be fully present in a quiet place. And this is exactly what we expect of those at work, mm -hmm. right? We expect people in the work, physical work setting to have those standards, so why don't we have those standards when people are attending remote meetings? So I love this. I, I love the idea of challenging the team to be able to position themselves that the mute button is something that no one truly needs because everyone has been thoughtful on where they're attending this meeting. Mm -hmm. and, and the meetings are not bloated in size and they have compelling agendas so people feel like they don't want to be, um, you know, social loafing and just, you know, not present. Yeah. We're almost out of time. And it's, but there's one last thing I want to ask you about, which is it's, this is so cool to me. It was my, it was, I know that your book has more important things in it, but this was my favorite thing just because it's, it involves hidden psychological levers that affect our behavior. And that was seeding because you talk all about you even have a chart like a, like a, like an illustration and you just you talk about what will happen if a person sits here or here and i would love to hear you talk about that for a little bit sure well what we know is that seating location does have an effect on your experience of of the interaction right so you know for example people sitting at the head of the table tend to emerge or you know, to more leadership roles. People sitting across from one another tend to experience a little bit more disagreements. People sitting next to each other actually tend to have more agreements. Um, so there's something about seating <laughs> location that just matters. And, yeah. and we, we can definitely, I mean, we, this, is, this is not a hard finding for us to understand because we know, I mean, when you're sitting at dinner, when all these things, seating location affects information flow. Well, none of this is a problem in of, of itself. But the fact is, if the seating location is identical, meeting after meeting after meeting, it just suggests that, that you're not potentially reaping the entire benefits of all the potential interactions and communication flow. Yeah. So I just like the idea as a way of keeping things fresh is for people to change where they sit at times. Um, I've seen this executed with a meeting leader having name placards. And every time you walk into the meeting, you're kind of sitting in a different location. It's kind of fun. It's different. And it definitely changes um, that communication flow. Um, so it's just another example of a small decision that can bring energy to a meeting, that can change communication flows. And those leaders who are intentional, right, they're intentional from who they invite. They're intentional about what they talk about. They're intentional about, about leveraging um, silence or seating locations or using Google Docs, but they're just thoughtful about the experience. They recognize that they're a steward and they want people to come to that meeting, but 
also leave that meeting feeling that their time was was valued. I, I totally understand this. I remember going from when we had a, when we got a new boss, uh, the old boss. We would have the the meeting where all the department heads would get together, and we would. I was one of these heads, so we'd go. We get together, and there was never. We didn't know what was going to happen, right? So you just go in, like we never knew what was going to be said or done in the meeting, or really when it was going to end. So we all go in, and. Who knows? He might tell a story from uh, his younger days in the business. Uh, we might talk about something somebody's doing. We had no idea. And then when we got a new boss, we had this like actual plan of action for every meeting. We all had a, a we all knew what we were, were what we were going to say, what we were going to bring ahead of time, and then. When we were finished, we got up and left, and it really blew my mind <laughs> that you could do that. And I thought about that. I thought that, I thought about that a lot reading your book. Um, and uh, but and then but the seating thing really uh, shook me because I was like, "Whoa, okay, that's something that's important too." People sitting at the head of the table will speak the most. People sitting next to each other will disagree the least. But if you sit across from somebody, you will disagree the most. Um, and people who can sit next to the leader will probably contribute least to the conversation because they're like right there. So like, uh, so the fact if you if in and but you're right, people all like like at school they would always sit in the same spot every time. Like that's the spot I sit at at. But we, I also noticed in different meetings you had different spots, but you would always sit in the same spot for that meeting, even if it was in the same room. Totally weird. People are so weird. It's funny. But you you recommend not just mixing up the seating arrangement from time to time, but you also talk a little bit about uh, walking meetings and standing meetings. So if you could talk about those two briefly. Sure. Um, again, it plays into this theme that we have lots of options as meeting leaders and stand up meetings are one of those things that the research um, shows. They tend to produce the same outcomes as sitting down meetings, but in nearly half as much time. Ah. And so those speedy meetings, are, I think, are prime candidates for, um, you know, for those for a standing meeting, and then walking meetings. Um, you know, it's another nice option. Um, walking meetings for you know just two or three people. Um, you know, perhaps a supervisor meeting with her or his uh, subordinate. Um, you know, and they they take a walk. Um, the ratings of those walking meetings also tend to be quite favorable. Um, people reporting some more um, additional creativity and uh, focus. Clearly, you can't multitask um, when you're having a walking meeting. But you know, when you do have a walking meeting, um, there are some important rules of thumb. You know, first of all, you need to tell people in advance about the walking meeting so they can be wear the right shoes. Uh, you need to keep it small. You need to think through your route. And then you can even think about leveraging some technologies, such as um, there are all kinds of nice apps that allow you to take notes with your voice, and then those become your meeting minutes. So you can still have kind of uh, an accounting mm. for what was discussed. Um, but all these, there's not one of these things that is the, the, the best choice, but all of these things are choices, and they're all helpful choices. And so when you think about this, the, this book, it really presents, you know, so many different tools and tactics and approaches. And what I want a leader to do is just to decide what fits them, what fits their culture, and what fits their team. Yeah, and and you and and to actually make an effort, like you know, this uh, I I do, you know, this is not usually the typical kind of book that I usually have on the show because it's 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 very like 
It's, a, it's almost an instruction manual. It's a business. It's a very business related book. But I love the idea. Uh, to me, it feels like the most important thing to me is that you are advocating science for meetings. I mean, you want people to like use what we've learned from research to adjust a thing that we all have to deal with. And I love the idea of that, whether from in every aspect of life. And I, and I love the idea that you you are a scientist who studies this very important part of our lives and that it is something that is quantified and studied and there's evidence for it. And I think that um, anyone who's listened to our interview, we've only really touched on a few tiny things here and there. The I have the book in front of me right now, and there is a giant portion in the back where you – it's not just like, you know, you get these books that will tell you, uh, a lot of times books like these will just give you all this information and say, now go talk to people about this at a, at a dinner party, right? But yours actually says, all throughout it, you have like example, you have like an example agenda that you could use as a template. In the back, you have all these graphs and templates and tools for people to and checklists for people to actually create better meetings and better agendas and better all sorts of things with pre-created templates for them to fill out on their own using the information in the book so that they can make it be exactly what they need for their organization. That's super cool, man. No, thank you. I, I appreciate it. And yeah, I mean, it's again, my, my motivation is clear. I really just wanted to um, try to help folks out with a extremely vexing challenge that they all that people are experiencing and um it's not for me it's not about my next book it's about you know trying to honor the science that informed this book uh i thank you so much uh by way of leaving just uh if people want to keep up with what you're doing how can they do that great um they should definitely visit my website and uh so it's called the surprising science.com again the surprising science.com mm-hmm. and i have all kinds of information on there. Um, I have free resources. I have, um, you know, other materials. So definitely, um, I'd love for people to check that out and to be part of that community. Oh, that sounds great. Uh, and are you on social media in any way? I am. Um, so I have a very large LinkedIn presence. So that yeah, definitely reach out on LinkedIn and then, um, on Twitter as well. Um, and on Twitter it's just at Steven Rogelberg. And the nice thing about my last name um, is that there's almost no one out there with it. So it's um, kind of an unusual last name. And so it's just R-O-G-E-L-B-E-R-G. So yeah, come, please connect. All right. Thank you so much for this. This has really been great. Uh, and thanks for working with me on the timing of it uh, and being patient with it. And this has been an absolute delight. And I wish you the best. Cool. Well, that's really, I'm very happy to be there on your show and um, also really appreciate you supporting science like this. Oh, it's all I care about, man. It's my, my number one mission in life. So I really appreciate uh, when people do science-based, any like evidence-based medicine, evidence-based meetings, the idea yep. that we can have evidence-based stuff is quite, yep. is very appealing to me. Even awesome. <laughs> that's really cool. So uh, I, uh, like I said, when your book came down the line, I was like, now, what is this all about? And, you know, you're so used to these books being pop science, but when they're actually right. written by the scientist, that's a completely different thing. And I really, cool. I really appreciate it. Nice. All right. Well, have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>
That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about on this episode, go to youarenotsosmart.com. There you'll find links to the previous episodes, show notes for all the shows, transcripts, all sorts of things. You can find my books. Oh my God, that's right. I have books and I never really say that on the show, but you can also find You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb anywhere they sell books. So yeah, we have something called a Facebook page that is Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. Twitter is Not Smart Blog, at Not Smart Blog. I am at David McRaney. If you'd like to pitch in and help the show out, you can go to Patreon. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show with no advertising. But if you pitch in at higher amounts, you can get t-shirts and signed books and all sorts of other crazy things. Go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart to learn more. There's also a YouTube channel. Uh, you can listen to previous episodes of the podcast there. You can also watch the live show in New York in its entirety over there at YouTube. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music is by Incompetech. And this music is by Banjo Apocalypse. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America. 